Michael Bennett is an acclaimed New Zealand screenwriter and director whose debut novel, Better the Blood, has already sold in six countries for translation rights. It's a nail-biting crime thriller that also tackles complex and difficult underlying themes. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading this week, Michael talks about his new book, a serial killer story led by a tenacious Maori detective, a female detective, unforgettable character, which reveals a darker side to Kiwi paradise and highlights the truth that the past never truly stays buried. Our free book giveaway is appropriately Crime, Mystery and Suspense for September. You'll find the details of how to enter that to get free books to download, plus the show notes for this episode on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Michael is on Binge Reading on Patreon, the Getting to Know You Five Quick Fire Questions, as usual this week. If you want to know some of his little secrets, become a supporter of the show for the cost of less than a cup of coffee a month. And our monthly new feature, Encore, is live for Patreon supporters this week. You remember Encore is where we interview authors who've already been on the show with their latest release. This month, it's Martin Walker talking about the latest book in his international best-selling mystery series about Bruno, the French police chief, set in the Perigord to kill a troubadour. Martin is on preview on Patreon for two weeks and then will be on general release later in the month. If you're particularly enjoying the show but don't find a way to commit to Patreon support, then why don't you think about showing me the love and supporting the show by buying me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel, W-H-E-E-L, with a cross, X, like a kiss. Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, Wheel, W-H-E-E-L, cross, big cross for a kiss on my cheek. That's it for the housekeeping, but now here's Michael. Hello there, Michael, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Tēnā Jenny. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Look, it's fun to have another Kiwi author on the show and one with such a fascinating book. This is your debut novel and often we don't take debut novels because we say we're the joys of binge reading. So we like to have multiple books if people like the author, they can go and read their backlist. But we've made the exception here today, or I have, because number one, it's a fascinating book, but also you're an experienced screenplay writer and you have also written a highly praised non-fiction book. So what made you switch to the fictional novel form for your writing? That's a great question, and I feel very complimented that you made an exception to have a debut novelist. So, Better the Blood, I guess just to talk a little bit first about what the book is about, so, you're, so sure. your listeners yeah, might yeah. know. Yeah. yeah, It's the story of a senior Māori cop and the Auckland CIB, Detective Senior Sergeant Hannah Westerman, who finds a connection between a series of killings that haven't previously been connected. What what Detective Senior Sergeant Westerman finds out is that in the 19th century, a, a Māori chief was 
brutally executed on one of the central Auckland Mona by a troop of English, of British Army soldiers. And what she discovers is the two killings that have happened today, descendants eight generations later of two of the soldiers in the troop that executed the Māori chief. There were six soldiers in the troop back then, and two descendants are dead now. Four more descendants are going to be killed unless Detective Westerman can stop the killer. So I guess the readers or the podcast listeners will kind of get that there's a lot of themes about colonialism and where we are in terms of like 200 years after New Zealand was colonised, etc. that within the story, what brought me to to writing this novel, I guess, is, yeah, as you point out, my background is very much as a filmmaker and a screenwriter. And that changed about maybe seven or eight or nine years ago when I got very involved in the case, in Taina Porter's case. Detective Tim McKinnell, ex-detective Tim McKinnell, who became a private investigator and, and who who really is the guy who saved Taina, who found his case, which was, you know, Taina was in prison and he was a forgotten man. Tim came to me and he showed me the videotapes of Taina being interviewed for five days in the in a South Auckland police station by two senior cops without a lawyer present and at the end of which he was arrested for for a murder that he didn't commit. Seeing those tapes was just a seismic tectonic change in my life, Jenny. Like I can't even begin to describe what it was like. My son was a 17-year-old at that point, the same age that Tainer was when he was being interviewed. And I just kept, you know, looking at this young Māori boy being questioned in in this kind of like way that is just like so problematic and who clearly had nothing to do with the crime, clearly knew nothing about the crime. And, you know, as a consequence of that question, spent 21 years in prison. Seeing those videotapes, it was a tectonic shift for me. I really, it it was a moment where I sort of realised that, you know, I'd spent a decade and a half developing my skills as a screenwriter and a filmmaker to a certain point. And here was suddenly something that I could use my skills for that was really important to help an innocent man get freedom and get justice. So I made a documentary on Tainer's case and eventually I'd make a a feature-length drama. But after the documentary came out, I realised that, you know, there's so much, there's only so much that you can put in a 60-minute documentary. And I knew so much more about both the injustice behind the case and the complexities in that injustice and what that says about, I guess, the justice system and how Māori are not are not well done by within that justice system, but also so much more that I knew about Taina as a human being and so much more that I wanted to explore. And, and so that for the first time in my life, I actually thought about writing prose. And that was like, you know, I'd always thought, I'm not a prose writer. You, you know, what, when I write, it's always like a series of images in my head. I say that there's a, a little movie screen in my head and, and, <laughs> and I'm literally watching my characters and moving through their environment, be it, you know, a hillside or a room or, and kissing each other or hitting each other or arguing or whatever. There's a little movie screen in my head and my writing is just sort of keeping up with that movie screen and <laughs> putting down what, uh, what I can see. And I've never thought about writing prose until until I realised that I really, you know, I was indebted to, to Taina and his story to really explore this story much more deeply. So so I did, I thought I'd give it a go and I'd write a non-fiction novel, a non-fiction book about Taina's case. And, and what I've got to say is that I really, I was so, it, it was such an incredibly joyful experience writing. I mean, it's not a joyful story to tell and I wish it was a story that I'd never had to tell. 
but it was a joyful experience, the writing of prose. There's a freedom in writing prose that you don't have as a screenwriter. I don't know if you've ever or your audience necessarily knows much about screenwriting, but I always compare it to a haiku, that there's it's a very structural kind of a writing. <laughs> you know, a haiku has, I'm probably going to make a fool of myself here, but does it have 14 syllables? Or, you know, yeah, there's a definite like structure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the same with screenwriting. You know, with a feature film, something happens at minute 10, something happens at minute 18, something happens at minute 24. In almost every film that you have ever seen, <laughs> the same structure occurs. And But with writing prose, with writing that first nonfiction book, you know, there was this incredible freedom. Yes, you have to keep the story moving forward. Yes, you have to keep progress happening. But you can spend a whole chapter just on a moment in a person's life that you, in a way that you can't really do with a screenplay you know structurally there's I think a lot more freedom to take moments that and to, to explore avenues that you wouldn't you'd never have time to do on film and television so having written that first non-fiction book in dark places I guess I the idea for better the blood had been simmering away for quite a while and having found out how much that I enjoyed writing prose and that kind of that the more freedom that prose offered me as a writer, really, I just couldn't wait to try and write Better the Blood as an as my first proper fiction novel. Yeah, so I guess that was a long way of saying <laughs> that I, I, I came to I came to prose writing very late in the piece after I developed my skills in writing and screenwriting, and you know, I th- and found that it was a, a form of writing. Prose was a form of writing that I that I loved and couldn't wait to do more of. Perhaps just a couple of quick questions on that before we really embark on Better the Blood. Why did Tim actually identify you as a person who might be interested in those interviews? Had you already known him or had you already done some work in social justice that made you a person of interest to him as someone who might be interested? I love that. I'm a person of interest to a detective. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's actually I've never asked him that. It's uh, I got an email in my inbox one day from Tim and he said, you know, I'm an investigator and there's this case I'm working on that you might be interested in. And we never, I've never got as far as to ask him because he was a stranger to me and I was a stranger to him. I can only think that perhaps maybe he'd seen some of my work. I'd done some work, you know, I'd done, I'd done some documentary kind of work on ex-gang members who'd, who'd reformed their lives and done done a lot of work on kind of, I guess, you know, social justice is a really burning passion for me in in, in much of what I do. And so, you know, perhaps he had seen that stuff or, you know, maybe he'd seen the feature drama that I made, which was called Matariki, set in South Auckland, which was, you know, it was a collision of a whole lot of different cultures within over three days in South Auckland, kind of a a multi-narrative story that explored a whole lot of kind of uh, intercultural issues and yeah, I, I, and it was interesting. Tim's one of the smartest people I know, and he knew that he had to take on the legal system to get justice for Tana, obviously, but he also knew that, that he had to get New Zealand behind Tana. He had to find the right people to get behind who, who would be passionate about telling Tana's story. So, yeah. so, of course, he talked to Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham, and, and they did incredible work with on their what they were doing. A whole lot of other people were working in different ways. For me, it became, you know, 
I, I was the guy who did the documentary and the book and the in the in the moment that I did see those videotapes, you know, there was no turning back for me. It was just like I just said to Tim, you know, whatever I can do to help you do what you're doing, just tell me. Yeah. And now Better the Blood has already enjoyed the results of that previous experience of yours because it's been sold internationally around the world as a six-part TV series. Are we likely to see it in New Zealand, Australia or the US? I've noticed most of those are foreign rights at the moment, aren't they? Is it coming to a screen near us in the near future? I really hope it is. Just to clarify that a little bit, Jenny, it's been developed as a six-part TV series. The rights to the TV series haven't sold yet. The rights that we have sold, it's been translated there's been nine translations of the novel itself. Oh, okay, sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, that's all good. And But the there's a TV series that is in development that my company, my partner, Jane Holland and I, we're a small production company and the last thing we did was the drama on, oh, the second to last thing we did was the drama about Tana in Dark Places. And last year we did this uh, beautiful little episode from the television New Zealand Beyond the Veil series, supernatural series about Patu Paarihi, which was just such a beautiful experience. Like it's a bit off piste, but just to tell you, I directed it with my 18-year-old daughter who is a poet and a filmmaker and a writer. She's an extraordinary writer. So we co-directed Jane, my partner, and Matariki, my daughter, and I wrote, wrote the film. My son composed the music. My daughter made the uh, mahina the costume design is just this beautiful little family event. So we are developing the adaptation of the book into a six-part series, and there is a a lot of interest in it. I think, you know, in the fact that, you know, the book really seems to have reached out beyond uh, not just the shores of New Zealand, which was always something I really worried about, Jenny. You know, I think you'll probably agree that it's really, it's a very specific book about, you know, us here today, about, you know, the experience of Māori 200 years after colonisation, you know, it's very, very specific to New Zealand. And I always worried, you know, is this book going to be able to reach out to to audiences beyond the New Zealand context who aren't familiar with New Zealand and aren't even familiar with, you know, Māori-Pākehā relations and our history? And what's been really gratifying, I think, is that you know, those nine translations before the book was ever published anywhere, which just, I still kind of cannot quite get my head around that because normally a book comes out and it does quite well and then translations happen. But there was this instant kind of feedback from different different territories that they really responded to the themes and the storytelling in the book. So what it does make me feel is that there is an internationality you know, we're not unique in our colonial experience in New Zealand, obviously. The the problems of the colonial project for Indigenous people are, has been replicated around the world, obviously. Yes. And so yes. I think, and it's a period, maybe this, what it reflects is that this is a time when, you know, both Indigenous voices, Indigenous storytellers are being heard or being sought out, but also where people are starting to understand both on the Indigenous side and on the other side, on the colonizers' side, that, you know, that our colonial histories, wherever they are in the world, you know, we need to deal with what has happened and we need to talk about these things. Yeah. You've said that you wanted to write a nail-biting novel that became a Trojan horse for these complex, you know, themes. And 
it is definitely a nail-biting novel. And I guess the graphic aspect of it, the, the thing that really grabs you at the beginning is that this crime that happened in the 1860s in Auckland is captured on, an, on a daguerreotype, an old type of photograph. So you've got this very graphic image of six British soldiers standing under a tree with a man hanging above their heads. And this has real resonance with the deep South in America and with the lynchings that happened there. So this theme of the imbalance of power and the misuse of power is very much a human one, isn't it? It, it speaks to everybody, and especially, I guess, in our times, as we're becoming more aware of how that power imbalance can produce institutional you know, lack of equality. And okay. Hannah, the detective, has this experience in a personal way because as a senior police officer, she has experienced the way that authority, so to speak in quotes, can use people like her to try and further their own interests. I mean, in the book, she it transpires that she's been involved in the past when she's a junior officer in some of the um, peaceful protests that happened in the 80s. And they put the Maori police officers on the front line and those sorts of, and it's a similar experience I would suspect for black police officers in the US at the moment. So there is very much an individual response to these as well as the institutional, isn't there? And mm. I, I noticed one of your reviewers said, Hannah's a great heroine and I hope we're going to see more of her. Now, I'm not quite sure whether that's going to be possible, but she mm -hmm. is a great uh, character to be able to carry all these themes on her shoulders. She's got the female aspect of it as well, of course, uh, yeah, being a yeah. woman officer in a police force. So all of that. Talk a bit yeah. about that. Yeah, I think I think I'm really touched that you've responded to those things, Jenny, because you know they're all the real pulsing central themes to the story to me. I think you know Hannah as a character. I just think she she carries so much complexity and so much inner contradiction, which, which is really important. You know, she's a woman, she, in so many ways, she's so relatable to all of us in a way. Like, you know, she's a, she's a woman working within a very much male-dominated police force, police. She's a, a Māori within a non-Māori-dominated justice system. She's a single mum who is trying her best to be the best mum she can to her willful, driven activist daughter. She's someone who her ex, who is also a cop, has, you know, he's a male white cop and he has catapulted above her probably, you know, not necessarily in a way that's been earned and is now her boss. So all of these things I think can, you know, we can see like resonances in our own worlds and so on. What we can't see is presumably not many readers have ever been in the position of having to stop a killer before they kill again. So that's something <laughs> <laughs> unique for Hannah. But absolutely, you know, I I find, you know, it, it's such an interesting situation. I've got a lot of cops in my family. So I've got nephews who are cops. And it, it, it's fascinating to me that, you know, like one of my nephews, he talks a lot about how in his day-to-day -day work, you know, obviously, it's very difficult for him because when he comes up against a young Māori person who's come into the, become a person of interest for the cops, one thing that he always tries to do, he tries so hard not to arrest them. <laughs> and that <laughs> doesn't quite sound the way it's meant to be. But what I mean by that is that his first instinct is always, even though 
it takes a hell of a lot of time out of his day is to take that person back to their family, to sit down with the family and say, look, this has happened. I should be taking this person into the prison cells. I don't want to. I want to try and sort this out with you guys. I want to see what alternative we can do to getting this kid within the system that, you know, because we all know that once you're in the system, it's so hard to get out of it. You've got a label, you've got a, an arrest, you've got a, and I just admire that so much. I, you know, and I think it's kind of like, I, God bless the fact that, you know, there's, that there are Māori within the system, there are, but also that the system is looking for Māori officers and Pacifica officers and et cetera. But yes, like, you know, one thing that I think is really, like I'm really, think is a really important dynamic within the book is that Hana, as a Māori, senior Māori cop, in, in a way, her pursuit of the killer through the book makes her face a whole lot of things that she hasn't actually faced before in her career. You know, as you said, that she was she was involved in a situation early as a young cop where her senior officers sent in a whole bunch of Māori officers to remove peaceful Māori land protesters who were quite rightfully quite rightfully protesting for the return of the land that they had every right to have, which is a terrible situation. And, you know, we know from our history that this has happened in New Zealand, obviously. It's inspired by actual events that have happened. And that's something that Hannah hasn't dealt with over her career, but also, in a way, she hasn't dealt with a whole lot of stuff about the complexity of being a Māori cop within, within the New Zealand justice system. You know, it's... It's an. It's most people would know that you know Māori are the most imprisoned Indigenous race on earth. Fifty-three percent of our prison cells are occupied by Māori, where we are actually only you know fourteen percent of the population. It's you know there's still so much work to be done. You know there's there's an embedded racism that may not be conscious with, and it may not be enunciated, but. It's there. <laughs> and Hannah is, you know, as a Māori within within the justice system, within the police force, in lots of ways, her pursuit of the killer through Better the Blood makes her aware and confront a whole lot of questions about her role within the police force that she hasn't confronted before. And, it, it, you know, and I think that's one of the really interesting complexities of the book, that, that a cop pursuing a killer, the act of that pursuit actually makes her face herself in the mirror in a way that she hasn't before. And so, you know, as well as all the other complexities about her as a character, I think that's one of the central kind of things within the book that explores, you know, some of those big themes that I'm trying to get out within yeah. Better the Blood. Yeah. Look, tell me about yeah. the title, Better the Blood. What did you... It's an unusual title. I'd like you to just tease out for us a little bit what you see in that title. Yeah. So it comes from a comes from a, a quote, which the full quote is better better the blood of the innocent than no blood at all. And I guess it comes from it comes from the idea behind what is happening. You know, that eight generations later, uh, the killer is using what happened 160 years ago the killing of the descendants of the British Army troop as a way of both 
you know, talking about the things that the killer wants, thinks need to be talked about, about injustice against Māori and about how things, you know, 160 years after colonisation, things haven't healed. It's still, you know, things are still not right. And they are doing that through 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 the killing of the descendants of the, of the troop and better the blood of the innocent than none at all talks about i guess the collective responsibility <laughs> talks about you know the victims eight generations later the descendants of that troop they in the killer's mind they carry the guilt of their ancestors actions so they may not have actually been there and they may not have actually killed that executed the chief 160 years ago but what he is saying and you know and this is very much a theme in the book that is open for debate and it's not my place to say that the, what the killer believes is right or wrong and that's absolutely part of the thematic debate of the book but what the killer believes is that they carry the responsibility for their ancestors actions just as surely as we all carry the responsibility today to acknowledge that you know what happened back in the colonisation of New Zealand is not healed and is an ongoing issue that we all should be aware of and we all should be confronting. Just we're, we're starting to come to the end of our time. It's been fascinating teasing out these themes, but you've also been active. I'd like to just turn to talking a little bit more about your wider work. You've been very active in encouraging writing workshops around the country. I think focused on the Maori community, but not necessarily exclusively so. What have you seen in those and what have you got out of it yourself? Oh, I, I cannot tell you how much teaching and passing on whatever it is that I've kind of learned along the years, it, it has made me so much better, a, a, so much better writer. So I do a series of programs with a institution called Script to Screen, which is an extraordinary institution, which is all about raising but both raising the level of screenwriting in New Zealand in terms of skills, but also reaching people who aren't necessarily think, thinking of themselves as being writers or filmmakers or anything of the sort. So what we do, what we've done in the past is, is every year we go to a different marae. It's just this beautiful weekend workshop where for the first day, you know, I, I'm one of the tutors and we we talk about filmmaking, we show short films and we show, we talk about telling. For me, it's always the biggest thing is is telling your story. You know, I keep, telling, I keep telling people who are interested in film or maybe haven't thought they're interested in film before, but I keep saying that you, you shouldn't be trying to be the next Taika or you shouldn't be trying to be the next Tarantino. If you are going to be successful, it's because you're going to be the next you. The, what people want to hear is the unique story that only you can tell, the story that's beating inside your ribcage that you will die unless you get it out of you. <laughs> So, you know, we, we show a selection of films that, that me and the other tutors have made that, that are very much that, that have come from our own personal experiences because I think, you know, all good art comes from, you know, your own voice. And then on the second day, we have all of the, all of the attendees come back the next day and we sit around and I give them the task overnight of coming up with a five-minute pitch of a story that comes from them, a personal story that no one else could tell. And it's amazing. You see their faces on day one going, I can never do that. I can never sit down and pitch to a room of people. Day two, everyone is pitching. These most, there's so many tears, <laughs> these most personal stories. And, you know, like not everyone is going to come out of there and become a filmmaker. But the biggest thing to me, the biggest joy is that everyone comes out of there going, 
well, I do have a story that's important, that's that should be told, and my life is important. But we also have, like, the wonderful thing is that we also have had so many people come out of there and go on to to study film and to be inspired to, you, you know, one in particular one year we, uh, on one of the Marae workshops, we, this young woman, she was 16, and she pitched this beautiful, beautiful story, which was basically about grief and about dealing with saying goodbye to somebody who had passed. And it was so good that we came back the next weekend. We, we sat down with her and helped her write the script. We came back the next weekend with Leon Nabi, who's one of the great DOPs. Just He's just shot Finna. We came back the next week and shot the short film. And a whole, you know, about 20 young rangatahi from the Marae became filmmakers. <laughs> we made the film together and her film... It's just amazing. She became the youngest filmmaker ever at the New Zealand International Film Festival, selected for screening. <laughs> Her film went to Canada to Imaginative, one of the biggest Indigenous, or the biggest Indigenous film festivals in the world. And she's on her way. She's studying film and those things. But like more than anything, yeah, no, it's awesome to open up the world of storytelling to a whole lot of people who haven't necessarily thought about it. But, but just on a totally selfish level, being able to talk about that stuff does make me a better writer because I have to be able to enunciate to them a whole lot of principles that, you know, maybe I haven't consciously enunciated to myself. And so, you know, there's a selfish aspect to it as well, Jen. <laughs> we, there's just so much we could talk about and I am going to go over time because I do want to ask you about your your own journey into filmmaking. Just briefly, I read a little bit online about how you were very much the sort of model model student who kind of got a little bit sidelined into other interests. But you went off to Australia to study filmmaking and your first film, I gather, was selected to be one of the preview films or the preview for a New York film festival screening with a Quentin Tarantino film. You mentioned his name earlier. It seemed to me that you had something marked in the stars for you right from the beginning. And you mentioned at the start that you saw things in images. Is that just naturally inborn? Did you watch a lot of movies or TV as you were growing up? How did all that come about? Yeah. In five seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can't explain it, but I don't think in words, I think in images, and then yeah. I have to translate it into words. Yeah. And that's, you know, I always sort of, my mum was a really great writer. My mum met my dad because she was writing her thesis about his dad. My Frederick Augustus Bennett was the first Māori Bishop of New Zealand. So my mum was a really great writer. She gave me a passion for words. My dad, you, you know, was a, he was a, decorated Spitfire pilot in World War II and he gave me a passion for social justice and and the two of them came together and passion for writing for me but I'd never found the kind of writing that you know that I wanted to spend my life doing until I found this thing called screenwriting and 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 that was just this moment of revelation to me <laughs> there's this amazing thing that is this combination of images and words and so after that it became my sole focus in life to get to the very best film school that I could get to, which was Australian Film Television Radio School, and to get the proper training and to pursue that. So, yeah, it was just, it was very, you know, it was, it was haphazard. My first degree was in psychology, and I still think that in many ways psychology, you know, the passion to find out about the human mind, how we work, the, the, the amazing, wonderful things we are capable of, and the terrible things that we are capable of. How do these things coexist inside one brain <laughs> so I still think that that's in the, you know like my first degree in psychology was is incredibly important for what I do now but then I just 
you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I came across this thing called screenwriting and, yeah, I feel blessed. Yeah, look, that's wonderful. Look, it is the joys of binge reading. So we do like to ask people what they're reading and much in the popular fiction realm so that people can follow up. And so what are you reading at the moment? And have you ever been a binge reader yourself? So my reading has really gone down over the years. and But just recently, I've been reading a lot more. So some of the things that I've been reading, S.A. Cosby, have you read S.A. Cosby? No, no. So I really strongly recommend. So he's an African-American writer. He's written an extraordinary book called Blacktop Wasteland. It's a it's very much a crime thriller, but it's so full of humanity. And, you know, I, I guess that's really what I look for in, in my reading is, you know, I, I do love genre and I do love action and crime, but, it, you know, it has to be a bit more than that. It has to be a bit more than entertainment. I, you know, I don't want to spend, I'm a slow reader and I don't want to spend a week reading a book that I don't feel moved by or feel like yeah. I understand a little bit more about humanity after I've read it. And S.A. Crosby is very much that. His second book is also extraordinary called Razorblade Tears. So recommend <laughs> this guy to you. The other book that I read that recently, well, I mean, I've been reading a bunch of stuff like Val McDermott, who I hadn't read before until yeah. she selected me for a panel at Harrogate. And I read her <laughs> and I just suddenly realised why she is the godmother of crime. Fabulous, incredible writer. Yeah. But an, another book that my publisher actually recommended to me, which is Winter Counts. Have you read this? By David yeah. Heskier. David Heskier Wombly Wyden, who's an Indigenous American writer. And it's again, it's a crime thriller, but, you know, I feel a real connection with what David Wyden is doing. Like, and I think New Zealanders will when they read this book. So, yeah. um, it's it's very much about and themes about you know indigenous characters and uh, finding you know your place within your culture, all wrapped up in in a thrilling sort of a crime story. So, yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. Those, those sound wonderful. I will follow up on those. Question I like to ask everybody, it just intrigues me. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there's one thing that you could change, what would it be? Or it may not be anything, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an amazing question. You always know a writer has to think when they say things like, that's a great question, Jenny. And <laughs> <laughs> what would I change? I guess, you know, I feel like from the outside, I look like I'm quite prodigious in the amount of work that I put out. But on the other hand, I wish I'd done more. <laughs> I think I really, truly grew into my skin as a creator and a filmmaker, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I really found the things that I was passionate about talking about. I mean, that passion was always there. You know, during during the 1981 tour, I was the captain of my first 15 and I marched down the street of our town during an anti-Springbok protest and I got absolute hell from the former captain of the first 15 for doing that. But Just, just these for things people are, who don't know the significance of 81, that was when the Springboks came to New Zealand and there was a huge public outcry, a famous period in New Zealand history where lots of people went out on the streets to try and stop the tour. They didn't actually manage to stop the tour, but they did very successfully disrupt it. So, yeah, that's just yeah. to give a little bit of background, yeah. And it would have yeah. been extremely courageous for a First 15 captain in those days to have done what you did. 
<laughs> I don't know if it was courageous. It was just something that, I, you know, I think all of us who went out and, and marched just felt that, you know, you had to do it. Like We didn't have a choice. And so, the, you know, those, those things that my parents gave me about, not just my parents, my grandparents as well, you know, about social justice and we're always there. And I guess it took me a long time to get to the point where I felt brave enough to integrate that into my work. And, and in lots of ways, I wish I got there earlier, but, you know, uh, a, a career is a journey. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you've got a good few productive years yet, so wonderful. <laughs> this is your, um, you know, golden time. Look, what is next for Michael, the author? That leads right not very nicely into what is next for Michael, the author. You're published by Simon & Schuster, which is one of the world's biggest internationals, although there's that little bit of controversy at the moment about their sale, isn't there? But is there any likelihood of a sequel to Better the Blood or... What else are you going to be working on? Because you've got a two-book deal with them, haven't you? Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. I'm working on the sequel right now. And oh. I'm starting work on it. And, you know, it's that thing, Jenny, the difficult second album. But that's all from the, within me as a writer. You know, it's just that nervousness. And the, it's I wouldn't call it writer's block. I actually just think writer's block is part of the process. That you have to, you have, to have this churn of, like, can I do it? Can I do it? And that that feeds your creativity. So very much yeah, working on the, the second book. And, and as you, you, again, desperately avoiding spoilers, but you you, you mentioned something earlier about where, where we leave the main character at the end of book one in a complex place that leaves lots of questions yeah. about where she's going. Yeah. And that is definitely what will be resolved and one of the things that resolved in book two. And also um, a very unfinished story about her daughter, who you sense is just going to be an amazing star in her own right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're such beautiful characters. And, and you know, as much as, you know, I might have that little bit of writer's nervousness, they're such strong characters that, and it's a, such a strong dynamic that I think, you know, I've given myself a gift in terms of writing the second book. Yeah. Also currently working on, we've got a, a feature film. So my partner and I, Jane, our production company is working with another couple of production companies on a beautiful, it's a true story about a friend of ours. Her daughter is a transgender dancer who she went, she's a young Māori woman from Northland and she went with her mum to Rarotonga and she fell in love with Cook Island dancing and she became so good so fast that she qualified to to dance and Dancer of the Year, which is the, in the Cook Islands, it's the equivalent of the All Black Rugby Test or more than that here. It's like, <laughs> it's the event of the year. And she was almost, she was about to dance and she was told that she couldn't dance because she wasn't, she couldn't dance as a young female dancer of the year because she wasn't a young female. She's transgender. And so she fought and fought and got the right to dance. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful story. And in a way, like, you, you know, my life is crime right now. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. And I love that, you know, because I think crime is a way, it's high stakes and you can explore such big themes within crime. But it's also really beautiful to be doing this heartwarming story about dance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and viewers and where can they find you online yeah they can't well I, I do <laughs> but I've I fled social media quite a long time ago I'm an overthinker Jenny which you probably picked up on but and, and I you know social media for me was like I would get a post or a, a response 
And I would spend an hour thinking about how do I respond to this post in the best possible way? And it was just taking up, you know, so I've fled that. They won't find me on social media, but I adore, I, I love interaction with, you know, with, well, with readers and with viewers, but just anyone who's sort of like driven to read and to maybe to thinking about writing. I just, it's very heartwarming to have those interactions. We've just done a bunch of writers' festival things, both in the UK for the book launch in the UK at different writers' festivals over there, but here at Kupu, the Rotorua Māori Writers' Festival and Hamilton Writers' Festival last weekend. And, and we've got a bunch of festival appearances coming up around the country. And I love that interaction. And, uh, you know, people who are so passionate about the written word, <laughs> it, it's it's a joy. Yeah. yeah, that's fabulous. Yes, I yeah. saw you were in Hamilton, actually. I was almost tempted to try and drive down, but <laughs> it was a little <laughs> bit too hard. <laughs> Look, wonderful to have had you on the show. It really is. And all power to you. Thank you, Jenny. And I'll just thank you for your interest in the book. And I really hope your readers, if they do get the chance to read the book and enjoy it. And yeah, no, thank you for having me on. Yeah. So it's there online. I mean, I don't think it's probably published in the US yet. Is it going to be published? No, it's published in the US, uh, I think January next year. Yeah, Yeah, but it will be online anyway already if they want to get a digital copy or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. Lovely. Thanks. Thank you, Jenny. Awesome. Next week on Binge Reading, Sophie Green. Sophie's made a name for herself with warm-hearted second-chance stories. The Bell Bird River Country Choir is a perfect example of what she excels at, a warm-hearted story of fresh beginnings, unexpected friendships, and the sustaining power of love and community. That's Sophie Green on The Joys of Binge Reading next week. <laughs>